Hello, First Church. Two weeks. It has been two weeks since I've spoken up here. I can't, it's been years since it's been back to back Sundays that I've not spoken. So I'm going to try to be as concise as possible and not put every thought that crosses my mind into this message. Uh, but I want to thank Thomas and James uh, for. Uh, for filling the pulpit the past couple uh, Sundays uh, means, means a lot. They did a good job covering Exodus uh, both 13 and 14 and then 15 as well. Uh, we are kind of moving into um, a, a little bit of a different, what, what you know, scholars, historians, theologians would call a different epoch, and that's E-P-O-C-H. Um, that basically refers to the way that God deals with his people, the way that God relates to his people. And we're moving, we've, we've talked about the three different kind of acts or the three different scenes that we're going to be covering in the entirety of this Exodus study. And we're kind of moving into scene two. Now, it's according to which scholar or theologian that you may ask or read, and they, you know, the marking of the time of these epoch transitions of where God really does start relating to his people differently. Some of them believe that it's a little bit more of a slower uh, you know, transition in the way that he relates. Some believe that it's instantaneous and a little bit later uh, as we go through this story. But I think that we definitely see a shifting and a moving here uh, as we are now entering into this different season because it's kind of a change of scenery uh, for the people of Israel because we've covered these first uh, you know, 15 chapters is what we've covered. And we've seen them primarily being held in bondage and in slavery in the nation of Egypt. And we've seen this leading out of God, you know, using mighty, mighty signs, wonders, these plagues, these strikes, these, these signs to uh, ultimately lead to this release of the Israelite people. Uh, and, and one of the things, you know, we didn't cover in great detail the, the parting of the sea for them to go through. We didn't cover in, you know, great detail all of that. But where we're going to kind of pick up today is as we get on the other side of that. Now, James talked about that last week. They were on the other side of, of the sea, and they began to sing this praise. Out of Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 18, is the first recorded song. Or really, you could almost say that it's the first recorded psalm in the scripture because we see them praising God for what he's done for their deliverance for the way that he's brought them out and then there was this uh, you know cloud by day this fire by night that was leading them and they get up to this point of the sea where there's no means of egress whatsoever and and we'll, we'll hit this here in a few minutes but we kind of see the Egyptians or the Israelites are so much like us you know it's like oh we're free we're dancing we're happy we're singing joy yes oh oh Oh, okay, wait a minute, there's, there's a sea here. There's something that, that, is that Pharaoh? Is that his armies? They're coming. Well, God, why did you bring us out here to die? You know, are there not graves enough in Egypt? You had to bring us out here so we could be buried in the wilderness? You know, we're kind of like that. We go from thankful to not thankful kind of quickly sometimes in our lives. But what I'm going to take today and do is I'm going to, you know, the first message in this is I gave you five themes. You know, this why this, why now type of introduction, uh, and I'm going to kind of set the scene a little bit as we're dealing with this change of scenery because Egypt is behind them. Now they're moving through this wilderness. 
Again, I want to, James mentioned this, Thomas mentioned this, and I want us to keep in the forefront of our mind. They were led in a particular route, in a particular way, they were led by God into the wilderness. Okay, let that sink in for just a minute. They were led by God into the wilderness. It wasn't like God had intended them to go a northern route. He said, I don't want you to go a northern route. That's where the Philistines are. You're not going to be able to overcome them. You're not strong enough right now as a nation to handle what you're going to meet on the other route. So I'm going to lead you this way. There are times, there are times in our lives where God can lead us into these wilderness type experiences. Okay, we see it in the Gospel of Luke. We see it in the Gospels where Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The difference between Jesus and the Israelites is Jesus spent 40 days there and then got out when the Spirit led him out. The Israelites stayed around for 40 years when God never intended them to be there that long. I don't know about you guys, but the dry seasons of my life, the wilderness experiences that I have, I don't want them lasting one day longer than what God has to have me in there. Now, I don't want to be there any longer than what I have to be. Whatever lessons I need to learn, God, let me learn them. Let me pass that test the first time because I don't want to have to repeat this. You see, God leads us into wilderness situations sometimes because we're not strong enough for what we may face elsewhere. We're not ready for what other paths may lead us into. And we need this wilderness time, this experience to be alone with him, to concentrate on him. That way we can strengthen ourselves in the Lord and we can draw closer unto him as he draws close into us. And we come out the other side more powerful. When Jesus was led into the wilderness, it says that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. If you, I believe it's Luke 14, whenever he comes out, he says that he came out of the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. See, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He came out of the wilderness in the power of the Holy Spirit. There are times that wilderness experiences are necessary and part of the journey that God has us on, but the wilderness is not your home. Amen? The wilderness is not your home. We were never meant to, to stay, you know, to plant the flag, the banner of our tribe right there and go, ha ha, this dry, horrible place is now my home. See, that's what the Israelites did. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. But before I get to my scripture today, I want to set uh, a little bit, of, just a little bit of a reminder. We've covered 15 chapters. And really, primarily, we have seen two themes. We've learned two things primarily in every situation. The first one of those is that God has a plan. God has a plan. Now, it may not look like you want it to look. It may not be the situation you would choose. It may be terrible because in the midst of slavery, in the midst of bondage, God had a plan for the people of Israel to lead them out. But you know what? In this story, we've learned that things got darker before they were brought out. Things got worse before they got better. And how many of you in your lives have experienced that? Secondary microphone. In your life, have you that has, okay. We've all been there, right? It's like God has promised that he's going to deliver me. God has promised that he's going to bring me out. God has promised that he is going to lead me away from this. And what happens, the next step is like, I just got deeper into this. Like, this just got worse. But we see 
throughout all of these things that God has done, the, the saving of Moses, the bringing him out, the Pharaoh's daughter drawing him out of the water, him being raised, him living in the wilderness, him coming back, the plagues, all of these things, God was working his plan. And it was ultimately for the good of the Israelites. Now, they had difficulty seeing that. And so do we. One of the themes out of all 15 chapters that we've covered so far is rest assured, church family, that in your life, God has a plan. And he is working that plan. Whether you can see it, whether you can feel it, whether you can touch it or not, whether it is tangible, God is working a plan in your life. Stay faithful. Stay strong to him. The second thing that we have seen in these 15 chapters is that God reveals himself. God is constantly showing and revealing himself to us as his people. And that's what we're learning. That's what we learned. Even through the 10 plagues, as terrible as they were, we kept seeing different aspects of God. We saw in uh, Genesis 3, or Genesis 3. Now, that's the fall. That's the bad. That's the bad, okay? In Exodus 3. We see where Moses has this encounter with God at the burning bush where he makes this statement of, I am who I am. And that was a revelation of God's nature. And God continuously reveals himself to his sons and daughters. Now, I, I need to put this caveat in here because I don't want to leave that too open for interpretation. Okay? It's true, it's scriptural, that God never changes. Amen? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God never changes, but our understanding of who He is does change. Our understanding of who God is does change because He is continuously revealing Himself to us. Anybody in here got God all, got God all figured out? Good. I was going to give you the microphone if you had that. We, we don't know everything that there is about God. So God's constantly revealing himself. God, God is constantly showing himself. And he's giving us this, this sense of who he is. The closer that we get to him, the closer he draws us to him, the more we get to know him. Now, quickly today, I'm going to, we're going to bounce to Exodus chapter 19. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 19. Now, I know, I know, I'm not good with numbers, but I realize that last Sunday we were in Exodus 15. We're going to skip a few, but for you A-type personalities out there, myself included, don't trip. Okay? Don't trip out right now. All right, we're going to come back in the next couple weeks, and we're going to cover 16, 17, and 18. But right now, we're going to, we're going to do, do chapter 19. And we're going to do verses 4 through 6. And the reason that we're going to do this is there are four themes that I kind of want us to reset that we need to understand are going to carry us for the remainder of this study. And it's actually these four themes are going to continue to carry us through the rest of God's story in his word. So Exodus 19, we're going to start with verse 4. 
You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came. I, I was going to stop there. I'm sorry. Do I have another one? I thought I was going through. No, it's six. It's been a couple weeks. I'm sorry. So I'm going to pull four themes from this that I want us to concentrate on this morning as we move forward in our study of Exodus. And the first theme, the first thing that we need to take away from this is that we need to remember what God's done for us. That in verse 4, remember what God has done. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Can I just say that for... I just, at least, what kind, of, what kind of demographic do I want to narrow it down to? So mankind is really the worst when it comes to this. Like all of us are the worst when it comes to this focus of remembering what God has done. Because you know what I'm guilty of? I'm guilty of focusing more on what I don't have or what God's not done instead of focusing on what he has done. And what I do have. Anybody else? Anybody? Yeah. It's like, we are the worst. But we, we take these things with these Israelites, you know, and we say, okay, um, for those of you who are parents out here, you're going to understand this. Uh, I think you're going to get this concept. Have you ever had an ungrateful child? Okay, now, easy, easy, Okay. This is not a sacrificial call. We're not bringing them up to the altar here, all right? All right? But you get this kid, and you, know, you want to give them what they want, right? I mean, within reason. and you, you know, Maybe it's Christmas. Maybe it's a birthday or whatnot. They've been wanting this, this one thing just like so much. You know, and you get it for them, and you're just waiting for this moment of, ah, you know, the, the, the hallelujah chorus is going to have, the light's going to be coming down, and I am dad, greatest ever. And they open this gift, and they get, they're like, ah, oh. Like, Wait a minute. Whoa, no, 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 no. That's not how you're supposed to react. Well, it's the wrong color. Or, That's not what I wanted. Or it's the wrong model. Or such and such has a newer iPhone than that. Or they've got an Apple Watch or an earplug. Or I don't know what's out there now, but they've got the newer thing. And then, you know, we as cool, confident level-headed parents, we sit back and this is our initial reaction. Oh, oh, oh. oh so that's how it's going to be, huh? Well, let me just take this thing back and I'll show you how it feels, all right? I'll just take this thing out here and let me just light it on fire. That's what I've heard some people will do. It's a, it's a hypothetical situation, right? It's like we are like the worst. And as adults, we would never dare do that. But yet, we constantly find ourselves focusing on what God hasn't done, or what we don't have. And we're going to see that God is just so gracious, and, and we can see that in our lives. But man, how gracious is he 
to the children of Israel. It's like, oh, this is great. This is great. It's like, oh, did you bring us out here to die? Okay. All right. Moses, hold out your staff. <laughs> Waters, dry ground. Boom. They get to the other side. They praise, and then they're like, what are we going to eat? Are we going to starve out here? God, what's happening? Oh, manna every day. Oh, good. Thank you. Oh, wait a minute. Where's the protein? There's no way I'm going to hit my macros with this. Are you kidding me? This is all carbs. It's going to go right to my hips. What's going on here? He just makes quail. It's like, oh, God, we're thirsty now. Oh, boom, rock. Oh, what? Oh, God, what's going to happen now? It's like there's this constant complaint. We're like, the Israelites are the worst. Guess what? We're all Israelites. We're kind of lumped in there. So it's so important for us to remember what God has done for us. And if you can't think of anything else, remember this. If you're here and you're a believer, you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he has brought you from death to life. Oh, come on. It was better than that. He has brought you from death to life. Now listen, I'm telling you, if I told you up here that your bank account just had a billion dollars deposited in it, you'd fall out. I mean, I'd be getting a great response from it, but we go from death to life. You're like, eh, that's okay. And it's like, that's the greatest miracle ever. He has brought us from death into his life and his resurrection. So we need to remember what he's done for us. The second focus that we see is in verse 5, is that God desires to dwell with us. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Guys, from the beginning of the book, from the beginning of the book, this is one of the focuses. God wants to dwell with us. Wherever you are, Whatever situation you find yourself in, God wants to dwell with you. We're going to get that just a little bit later. So go ahead and give me the next one, please. The third focus is that he brings us to himself. That's talking about God bringing us in in verse 5, and he's like, I'm bringing you, I'm drawing you to myself. Think about that. The God of the universe, the creator, the sustainer, the sovereign one, looks at you and goes, I want to bring that one near. Now, we will have moments in our lives to where we can look at additional people. And, and, and I won't, my, my wife, uh, she sends her greetings. My side of the family had a family reunion today. She went to that. But there are times that my wife, the love of my life, looks at me, all adoring like, and the last thing on her mind is for me to get any closer to her than what I already am. Like, you know, this is the one that has chosen. She has chosen to spend her life with me. And she's just like, there, that's the line. You know, it goes back to the kids of that, don't cross that. Because I may not be, may not be acting pastoral in that moment. I may not be the easiest to love at that time. But then there are times that she wants to be close with me. You see, that's how kind of our love is based. Is that no matter, even the person we're the closest to, there are times where we're like, nope, sorry. Mm -mm. Just right there. 
Let's pretend the six-foot thing is still happening right there. But God so deeply desires to dwell with us that even at our worst, he said, come on. Come to me. Even in, even in the worst wallowing of, of sin and death and decay and just absolute depravity, God looked at us and he said, come to me. I want to dwell with you. You see, God is not a God who only wants to dwell with us when we're at our best because we can never be good enough to dwell with him. But God simply wants to dwell with us. And the, the last focus here is that he makes us priests and a holy nation. Six, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. You know, we see this echoed in the New Testament, and, and I believe that really the King James gets this the closest to the accurate translation because it says, I'm going to make you, as I trip on a plug here, I'm going to make you a royal priesthood. And then it says, a peculiar people. There's a lot of y'all that's peculiar in here this morning. You know that? But God is wanting us. He's wanting to make us in this priesthood. And we'll, we'll get to that again. I know I'm kind of future casting here just a little bit as to where we're going in Exodus. But, you know, I can't say that at the beginning of this, when I was studying for this, that I was really, really excited about this Levitical priesthood, uh, about all these garments, about the tabernacle, about all of this stuff that we're getting. Yes, we're going to cover that. And yes, you're going to learn a lot more than you ever thought was possible in looking at those things and how they point us to Christ. But I want us to understand, I want to kind of camp here for a minute and think about what this means to make us priests and a holy nation. I think one of the natural questions that we have whenever we study and we read the book of Exodus is why the Israelites? Okay, we know that they were God's chosen people, but why? Why did, why did he basically just almost cripple Egypt? What's the difference between Israel and Egypt? I think that's a, that's a fair question. Was it that the Israelites were so much better people? No, they were terrible. They were stubborn. They were hard-headed. They grumbled. They complained. They moaned. They groaned. They opened the gift. It wasn't the right color. And God didn't kill them. And that's amazing. Because I'm not going to lie to you, I can't say that I could make it through this with these people and not at least make an example out of one of them. Okay, judge me if you want, that's fine. But you all know you're the same way. But this shows us the grace of God. Israel wasn't better than Egypt. God chose Israel to bless them, to set them apart so that other nations could look at the nation of Israel and see what it looked like to be blessed by God. He wanted them to see what it was to be a nation that followed and was blessed by God. He never chose Israel to say, which just this one is mine and the rest of them can literally go to hell. 
He chose them so that through this favor, through this blessing, that the nations that saw them would know what it was like to be blessed by God and want that and desire that and to see that. Church, can I tell you that it is the same today with us. God has made us a holy nation. He has made us priests. He's made us a peculiar people. He has set us apart. Is it because we're better than anybody else? No. And I love the way that Paul says this of, of the sinners, of whom I am chief, of whom I'm the worst. God didn't choose us just because we're better than somebody else. He chose us to save us for something. We know that he saves us from sin, right? He saves us from sin, but he also saves us for something. And that's this royal priesthood, this holy nation that others can look at us and see what it looks like for a life to be in obedience and in blessing of God. To draw others to him through the blessing of what we've received in him. Does that make sense? It's like if you're here this morning and you're saved, it's not because you're better than anybody who's not here. Hate to burst your bubble. God saves us from our sin, gives us an eternity in heaven, a promise of that with him, but he's also wanting to use your life as a holy nation, as a royal priesthood, as a people who are set apart and different, not so you can set and judge and quip and think that you're better than anybody who doesn't follow Jesus. No, but to be able to show them what it's like to live under the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. Told you it's been a couple weeks. Get fired up up here. I'm sorry. But when we think about that, that he's brought us from death to life, and not only is that benefiting us, we are salt, we are light. We are to live our lives in such a way that it draws others to Jesus Christ. Royal priesthood, holy nation. Okay, so how do we do this? I'm going to use a couple words, and then we're going to talk about a passage of Scripture, and then I'm going to be done. Okay? We, the Bible uses a couple words to kind of give us an idea of how all of these things are accomplished. How do we remember? How does God draw us in? How do we dwell with him? How, do we, how is this royal priesthood, this holy nation, how does that come about? I want to use the first word, which is the one that I prefer, which is abide. Abide. If you look at John chapter 15, Verses 1 through 17, some of the translations are going to say remain. Some of them will say abide. But Jesus takes this moment. They're in the garden. They're on the way to his crucifixion. And he stops in this vineyard. And he begins to teach them that I am the vine. You are the branches. God is the vine keeper. He is, he is the, the one who takes care of this. He says, if you'll abide in me, or if you'll remain in me, then you'll produce what? You're going to produce fruit. So here's why I think that this is important for us in today's context of these four themes that we're seeing. If you're abiding and remaining in Christ, guess what? 
you're not the one making the calls. You're not the one calling the shots. To abide in him, to remain in him, means to be in submission to him. To be obedient to what he's asking you to do. You can't, I'm sorry, this is just, you cannot abide and remain and be plugged in and connected to the source of Jesus Christ and produce something of the world. When you are abiding in him and remaining in him, then we see in the New Testament that these, the fruit of the Spirit, right? That's what comes from that. Why? Because we're not the one in control. I know that's tough. I know that's difficult for us. I don't think it's difficult for us to understand. I think it's difficult for us to practice because I am the master of my destiny. I am the one who's calling the shots. I am the one that's in control. No, no you're not. And I would invite you to take a little bit of inventory to understand and, and reflect when you are in control, when you are the master of your destiny, and when you are responsible for these outcomes, how's that working out for you? How's it worked out for you? Like, I've done that. And it's terrible. Like, I am my own worst enemy. You are your own worst enemy because at our core, in our flesh, we are selfish, self-centered people. That's what the Bible says. I'm sorry if that hurts. But when we abide, when we remain, when we submit, whenever we walk arm in arm with Jesus Christ and allow him to establish the direction in our lives, it no longer becomes just about us. It becomes about those who are around us, those that we're impacting, those that we are leaving an imprint on their lives as we do the work of the ministry because we're abiding, we're remaining in Jesus Christ. And I, I don't believe that we can truly abide and remain in him unless we remember and recall in the difficult moments what God has done for us. Like, has there ever been a time, has there ever been a situation in your life that you feel like there is no way out of it? Like, I don't know if this is ever going to end. I don't know if there is a good outcome from this. You see, it's in those moments that I need to look back. And if I'm just being real honest real transparent here and, and this is th this is not a oh, poor guy kind of thing because we've all got a story right we've all got our history but whenever I'm going something I go back to my childhood when I was growing up and I lost a sister to cancer and I lost a dad to a massive heart attack and then I saw my mom keep it together enough to raise a somewhat competent teenager into a young man I saw her have that strength and I can look back on that and go if it wasn't for Jesus if it wasn't for God, we wouldn't be where we're at today. If God can get me through that, if God's sustaining power, if his glorious grace and mercy and strength gets me through that, I don't care what I'm facing now, I know he's still got me. And all of you can look back at a time in your life where you have felt like there is absolutely no way. The devastation is too much. The loss has been too great. There's nothing that can be done. I'm never recovering from this. And somehow, 
right? But God brought you through. It's in those moments of when we're facing those times today where we feel like there's no hope that we need to look to the source of hope and what he's done for us. And family, if we're not abiding in him, if we're not remaining in him, our first tendency is not going to be to look to that source of hope. We're going to try to fix it ourselves. When we abide in him, when we remain in him, then he continually draws us closer. We're continually at this source and remaining in him. And we abide and we remain when we understand that God is calling us to do a work. Now, whether it's a work with your hands, whether it's a work with your voice, whatever it is, God is calling you to do a work, and that's to be salt and to be light and to allow others to see what God is and has done in your life. Amen? Amen. I want to invite the praise team to come back up with me this morning. See, what we're going to see over and over and over again in this study of the Israelites in the wilderness is that they had glorious times of abiding and remaining in God. But then they had not so glorious times of where they would separate themselves and they would lean on their own understanding and they would tend to want to call the shots and set their own direction. And we're going to see that no matter what they face, God's grace is so powerful that it makes a way for them where there seems to be no way. 